The Bible reading is the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will, does away with the first in order to establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, and write them on their mind. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word that we've just heard you is eternal life. And so we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work through this word that he has inspired, uh, that we may truly know you more fully. Uh, would you give us a heart that are humble? Uh, would you give us great faith in you and what you have revealed to us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, and as you sit, uh, do keep your bulletins uh, open to Hebrews. Stand if you have a Bible with you this morning, open up in your Bibles to uh, the beginning there of Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, I'm currently teaching uh, one of our uh, membership classes that we uh, regularly offer here at Christ Church. Uh, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do in my, my role here. I get to introduce people to our church, get to reflect on all the ways that God has been work, at work among us. Uh, so many things for us to be grateful for as a church. Uh, one of the areas that we uh, cover in that membership class is what it is that our church believes. 
And so we'll look at our church's statement of faith, which is given expression in the 39 articles uh, of the Anglican Communion. But before we do that, I, I try to first make very explicit what it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And so um, I usually give just a very short quiz to sort of test people. Now, if you know the gospel, it's a very simple quiz. It's not, it's not difficult at all, but it can perhaps be clarifying nonetheless. So I'm going to give you all the quiz today, okay? Three simple questions. Again, it's very easy. Three simple questions. You don't have to answer out loud. Uh, first, is the gospel message good advice or good news? Second, is the gospel about you receiving or you achieving? And third, is the gospel about something that's been done or something that you need to do? Done or do? You said that the gospel is good news, not good advice, and that it's about receiving, not achieving, and that it's about that which has been done for us, not that uh, about that which we need to do. Then you pass it quickly. Congratulations. If you did, maybe come see me afterwards and we can talk through it. Uh, the gospel is proclaiming to us the good news about what Jesus has done for us. Uh, it's not simply giving us some good advice for how we should live our lives. And therefore, it's not about us achieving something, but about us receiving what Jesus has done. And thus, between the two words, do or done, done is what defines the message of the gospel. It is done. Now, what are we referring to exactly, right? What exactly is done? Well, Jesus has done it all when it comes to taking away our sin. Jesus died the death that we deserved for our sin. And in doing so, he took the guilt and all of the punishment so that we can be forgiven of our sin and restored to a right relationship with God. But that work is all done. And Jesus is the one who has done it all. And so for anybody, whether they become a member of this church or not, we, we, we desperately want them to know the gospel message. Because it is good news. It's great news. It's life-changing news. And there is no true Christianity without it. And so, friends, one of my goals as, as a pastor in this church is to see that every single one of us is confident about this. Uh, I want us to have confidence in the good news of what Jesus has done for us and what we can now receive because of him. And the letter to the Hebrews, which we've been studying for many months now, is, is all about building this kind of, uh, what we might call, gospel confidence. Uh, the author of this letter desperately wants this congregation, whom he's writing, to have confidence in the finished work of Jesus. That because of Jesus, they can, right now, in their lives, have full assurance that their sins are forgiven. And thus, right now, in their lives, they can draw near to God and enjoy fellowship with their Creator. And that's particularly the aim of this section that we're looking at here this morning. It's to build gospel confidence. Now, you're not going to find the word confidence in these particular verses, verses 1 to 18. But if you have a Bible open, and you look at the very next verse after our section today, verse 19, you'll see the word confidence there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and then the author goes on to list the implications of this kind of confidence for our lives. And likewise, if you look down at verse 35 of chapter 10, 
Uh, you also see the word confidence there in the context of him saying, hey, don't throw away your confidence. And so the aim of verses 1 to 18 of this chapter is to build in us this kind of gospel confidence that the blood of Jesus has indeed taken away our sins so that we can now enter into the presence of God. And thus to make sure that we hold on to this confidence with all that we are. So we'll look at the implications of this gospel confidence in the upcoming weeks. But this morning as we focus on just verses 1 to 18, we want to try and do what the Bible tends to do through this passage. And that's to build our confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus really has done it all. Uh, our sins really are forgiven. They really have been taken away from us. We really can draw near to God. Jesus has done it all, and there's nothing left to be done. In fact, look at the final two verses of our passage today. Uh, in verse 17, the author quotes Jeremiah 31, in which God promises that under the new covenant of Jesus, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And the Bible is very clear in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, it's all done. There's nothing left to do. Jesus has completely taken away our sins for us on the cross. It is finished. Friends, I pray you'll be here this morning with that kind of gospel confidence. So let's walk through these verses. Let's consider the ways... Uh, the Bible here is trying to build our confidence in this, this good news message. And by my count, there, there are six different reasons given here for why we should have confidence in the cross of Jesus to take away our sin. Uh, the first reason is because Jesus is the reality of which the old covenant was merely a shadow. Now, if you look at the first four verses of this chapter, the first four verses there are showing us the insufficiency of the Old Covenant to take away our sins. And then beginning at verse 5, we're shown the contrast of the sufficiency of, of what Jesus has done. So first four verses, insufficiency of the Old Covenant. Beginning verse 5 onwards, the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. And so verse 1 begins by stating that the things of the Old Covenant, and, and he uses the word law there as, as a summary for the Old Covenant, uh, the things of the Old Covenant are merely a shadow of the good things that have now come in Jesus, who's the substance or the reality of that shadow. Uh, this, of course, picks up on language that the author of Hebrews has uh, already used back in chapters 8 and 9, where he spoke of the, the tabernacle and the, the sacrifices and, and the work of the priests as being uh, shadows of heavenly realities that, that have been now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the point of the contrast here isn't to say that the Old Covenant was bad and that the New Covenant is good. Rather, it's more of a contrast between that which is incomplete and that which is complete. A shadow isn't bad. A shadow just isn't the real thing. Rather, a shadow merely points you to the real thing. And that's what the Old Covenant sacrifices and priests were like. They were meant to point us to Jesus. And friends, this would have been a particularly relevant point for these Hebrew Christians. Because one of the main reasons that their confidence was being shaken was because it seems that there were, there were people around them who were telling them that they needed to get back to the temple and to once again be active participants in that Old Covenant sacrificial system. And this letter was written at a time in which that was very much a live option for them. Uh, the temple was still operational. 
The sacrifices were still happening. That they could have jumped back into all of that and participated in all of that. And so the author of this letter is writing to them to say, why would you place your confidence in the shadow instead of he who is the reality and the substance of that shadow? I mean, can you imagine standing next to someone you love and their shadow is being cast on the wall? But instead of you giving your time and your, and your attention and your affection to, to the actual person who's there with you, you give it to their shadow. You, you talk to their shadow. Oh, that would be odd. You got offensive, actually, to the person who's standing next to you. And that's what he's saying here. We're, we're told not to put our confidence in those old, shadowy sacrifices from the Old Testament. We shouldn't trust them to take away our sins, but to, instead we should put our confidence in Jesus, who is the true form of those realities. A second reason we should have confidence in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for our sin is because Jesus provides the perfection we need. Whereas the sacrifices of the old covenant could never provide true perfection. Now look at verse 1. <clears throat> for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the Old Testament sacrifices, because they're just a shadow, they couldn't make us perfect. Uh, they couldn't actually take away our sins. And thus they, they had to keep being offered. Whereas Jesus has perfected us. And so if you skip down to verse 10, the Bible says there in verse 10 that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, to be sanctified is to be made holy, it's to be uh, set apart specifically for God. And so we've been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ. And then uh, look at verse 14, where we're told that by Jesus' single offering of himself, he has perfected his people for all time. So you see, Jesus has done what those shadowy Old Testament sacrifices could never do. Now, it's important we understand what the Bible means here by perfection. Uh, this is language that we've already seen in Hebrews. Uh, for example, back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, the point was made that perfection uh, wasn't attainable under the ministry of the old Levitical priests. Uh, similarly, in chapter 9, verse 9, we were told that the old sacrifices were unable to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And so within the context of Hebrews, uh, what's meant by perfection here isn't, isn't an internal moral perfection uh, that describes our actual behavior. But rather, it has to do with our status before God. So in other words, it has to do with how God now sees us and how God now treats us because of Jesus. Uh, namely, he no longer sees us as, as guilty sinners who deserve condemnation. But he sees us now as those who have been, been counted perfect because of Jesus. And so perfection here has everything to do with the forgiveness of our sins. That's, that's the context of Hebrews 10. And for the most part, the, the words perfect and cleansed and sanctified in this chapter, they're all being used in this same way to refer to the fact that Jesus has made it possible for us to be forgiven by him having taken the punishment 
our sin deserved. And so if you look at verse 4, uh, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but that's exactly what the blood of Jesus has done. And thus God declares there in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so Jesus' people are perfected now in the sense that God has, has taken away their sin and forgiven them, and thus he never brings their sin to mind again as a basis for condemnation. Which means that if you put your trust in Jesus' blood for you, uh, then you can now stand before God as one who is perfect. Uh, you've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. Uh, you no longer have to have a, have a consciousness of sins when you stand before God because the guilt of your sin has been removed and God no longer counts your sin against you. The Bible actually illustrates this kind of perfection in, in a wonderful way through the prophet Zechariah. Uh, in Zechariah chapter 3, we're given a, a vision of a heavenly gathering around the throne of God in which God is putting his justice on display. And in this vision, even Satan has come into this, this heavenly courtroom with the mission to accuse God's people of sinning against God. And so there stands Satan arguing for the, the condemnation of, of sinners like you and me. And of course he's right in one way. Right? Because in, 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 our, in, our, in our own, in, in our sin, we, we don't belong in that heavenly death. Uh, on our own, we, we don't belong in the presence of a holy God. On our own, we deserve to, to be removed and condemned. But that's not what God does. Instead, Zechariah has, has this vision of the Lord taking off, taking off our, our tattered, dirty clothes, symbolizing our sin, and, and dressing us instead in the royal garments of his kingdom that have been perfectly tailored just for us. And the end result is that we now look beautiful. We now look perfect. We, we no longer have those old tattered clothes, that old sin covering us. But the key there is that it's not because of us. And it's not because of any perfection that we have personally achieved. It's, it's because of the grace and mercy of God and what Jesus has done for us. He, he's clothed us with his righteousness, taking away all of our sin. And so our confidence, you see, it isn't in ourselves, it's in Jesus. Listen, nothing in Scripture encourages self-confidence. Nothing in Scripture encourages you to be confident about yourself. Self-confidence isn't the solution. Self-confidence isn't the problem. But the Bible does encourage us, indeed exhorts us, to have absolute confidence in Jesus Christ. To take away our sins so we can stand before God as those he now chooses to look on as perfect. Okay, so second reason we should have confidence in Jesus is because he's able to do what those old sacrifices never could, and that's make us perfect before God. Uh, third reason we should have confidence in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for our sin is because Jesus' one-time sacrifice is all we need. Uh, I'm sure you notice that that's a significant theme in these verses, that Jesus uh, was sacrificed, sacrificed only once. Uh, and Jesus' one-time sacrifice is contrasted, of course, with the repeated sacrifices of the Old Covenant. 
Now, those old sacrifices were, verse 1, continually offered every year. Verse 2, they never ceased to be offered. Likewise, verse 11, the work of the Old Testament priest was to offer repeatedly the same sacrifices. And thus the result of having these constant repeated sacrifices is stated in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So not, so not only did all those shadowy Old Testament sacrifices not take away sin and thus not perfect people, but they actually served as an ongoing reminder to people of their sin. Right? Every time a sacrifice was made, whether it was the, the ongoing day of the sacrifices or that, that annual day of atonement sacrifice, every time a sacrifice was made, it served as a, as a very visual reminder that you have a sin problem that must be dealt with. You know, imagine you get sick in some way and you go see your doctor and your, your doctor prescribes you some medicine. He gives you a bottle of medicine. And he says that because you're sick, you now need to take this medicine every day. Every morning when you wake up, you got to take one of those pills. And so that's what you do. Every morning you wake up, you take that medicine. But imagine if your sickness never goes away. Every morning you're taking a pill. At that point, all that medicine is doing is reminding you that every time you take it, that you are in fact sick. And thus you're in need of, of, of a, a real cure that will heal you for good. I mean, it's to be a reminder of your sickness. Well, that's what those Old Testament repeated sacrifices were like. They, they didn't cure you. They just made it very clear that you were sick. That you're in need of a cure. And so the reason we get a confidence in Jesus is because with Jesus, his one-time sacrifice is all that's needed. And thus there are now no more offerings that ever need to be made. Verse 10. We have been sanctified, made perfect, through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12. Jesus is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Verse 14, it is by a single offering that he has perfected his people. And thus, verse 18, there is no longer any offering for sin that's needed. Friends, it is all done. Did you see how the Bible desperately wants you to see and believe this? Just keep making the same point over and over again. It's all done! There are no more sacrifices needed, ever. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, in the prayers that we pray at that time, uh, we're very careful to emphasize that what we're doing is, is remembering, quote, that one oblation, that one offering of himself that Jesus once offered to take away the sin of the world. That's what we're emphasizing when we gather around the table for the Lord's Supper. Why? Because there are no more offerings that are we don't need a representation of Jesus' sacrifice. We don't need Jesus to sacrifice himself again. And friends, there are, there are no offerings that you need to make in order to convince God to take away your sin and forgive you. Maybe you fall into that trap sometimes. You, you do something you know you shouldn't do. And you think you've got to make it up to God somehow. You've got to make an offering to God so that he'll forgive you. No, no. Friends, we have confidence in Jesus' once for all sacrifice. Live Rest in his finishing. It's, it's all life. There are no more offerings ever. Fourth. Uh, fourth reason we should have confidence in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for our sin. 
is because Jesus has obediently accomplished the will of God. He has obediently accomplished the will of God. Uh, this is the reason given in verses 5 to 10. So in verse 4, uh, again, the point was made that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then verse 5, consequently, as a result of that, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In birth offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's a, that's a quote from Psalm 40. It was originally prayed by King David. But here in Hebrews, it is put on the lips of Jesus. When he, the, the Son of God, took on human flesh and was born into this world. And the Bible is telling us that this is what Jesus understood to be his mission in obedience to the will of God the Father. He didn't come to offer a bunch of sacrifices because that's not what God ultimately takes pleasure in. And even in the Old Testament, it's, it's clearly revealed in the prayer of David from Psalm 40. It wasn't the blood of animals that God but rather, what brings God pleasure is the loving and joyful obedience of his people. And friends, actually, if you're paying attention, when you read through the Old Testament, this point is made all over the Old Testament. I mean, just to, to give you a few of many examples. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15, the reason King Saul is removed uh, from his, his role as king is because of disobedience. Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Or in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, God actually says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assembly. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like water, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or Hosea 6.6. 6. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. As you see, it was never about the sacrifices of animals. Now, this doesn't mean that the Old Covenant offerings contradicted the will of God in any way. It simply means that God isn't interested in religious rituals if it's not driven by faith and obedience. Friends, God isn't after mere sacrifices. He's after a people who have hearts that love Him and worship Him and do so in such a way that they obey Him. Which is why we're told once again in this chapter in verse 16 that in the new covenant ministry of Jesus, God has, has actually taken His law and He's He's written it on our hearts and on our minds, which, which is a, an inner transformational act. So verse 16 is a quote from Jeremiah 31. 
I already quoted back in chapter 8 of Hebrews, that making the point that God is bringing real transformation into our lives so that we can increasingly grow in obedience to Him. We should know that about God. We should know that He takes pleasure when you, when you obey Him. Right? You should know that he, He's not after some empty religious ritual that you might perform. Uh, he's not after you simply going through the motions of your spiritual disciplines. He's after your heart. He wants you to live your life for his glory. That's what he wants. That's what he takes pleasure in. Now that said, however, the main point of chapter 10 isn't our obedience. It's the obedience of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been obedient to the will of God. And the point here is that he's been obedient even to the point of death. And thus, in his obedience to the will of the Father, Jesus has freely and joyfully offered up his body to take away our sin. And the fact that the Bible here has placed the words of Psalm 40 on the lips of Jesus is, is very interesting, I think. Because it's not that Jesus actually said that. At least it's not recorded in any of the gospel records that we have. But you see, what, what, what the inspired word of God here is telling us is that this is the way that Jesus thought about his mission. That he took Psalm 40 as his own. And thus, in doing so, said, in effect, Father, I know that it's not sacrifices you're really after. That's never been your heart's desire. Just that your people repeatedly offer sacrifices to you as if that's all that matters. But instead, Father, you desire a relationship with your people who do your will and live in holy fellowship with you. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey you fully and live in fellowship with you. And then as part of my joyful obedience to you, I will do your will and offer up my body as the final sacrifice needed to take away from your people the guilt of their sin and to begin to transform them into obedient children who love you and draw near to you. That's what you desire. And that's what I'm and so, friends, Hebrews here is telling us to be confident in what Jesus has done for you. Be confident that he has obediently fulfilled the will of the Father by offering his body for you. And with that offering, God is pleased. Fifth. Uh, a fifth reason we should have confidence in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for our sin is because Jesus is now seated at God's right hand. Uh, if you want a visual image <clears throat> of the differences uh, between the sacrifices of the Old Covenant and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross in the New Covenant, uh, the visual difference is between priests who are standing as they endlessly labor away and Jesus who now sits at God's right hand, having achieved complete and total victory over sin and Satan and every, and every enemy. Right, look at verse, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Dear friend, if Jesus is now sitting, why are you endlessly laboring away, trying to prove yourself to him? And your king and savior now sits. And because of that, your status in the presence of God is secure. You've been made perfect. It's all done. Sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. The victory has already been won. It's now just a matter of time before the fullness of that victory will, will be seen in, in this world. It's just a matter of time. What a great picture the Bible gives us here to encourage us that our sins are fully and really dealt with. Because Jesus is now sitting, you can have confidence that it's all. And then six. Uh, a sixth reason we should have confidence in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for our sin is because those who Jesus has perfected for all time are those who are still struggling with the presence of sin. Well, at least that's my paraphrase of what I think verse 14 is trying to communicate. Now look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we've already said uh, that the word perfection in Hebrews is not about us having some sort of uh, personal perfection of our own that, that we've achieved for ourselves. But rather that we've been perfected in the sense that our sin has been forgiven and remembered no more. And therefore we can stand before God as those he looks on as perfect. Clothed in the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus. And we've also said that the word sanctified, back in verse 10, is virtually a synonym for being made perfect. In that it's a, a recognition of our new status before God as those who have been forgiven of their sin and declared holy in Christ. But here now in verse 14, the word sanctify seems to be functioning differently. Namely, it doesn't seem here to be a description of our new status before God, but rather a description of the ongoing process through which God is working to actually make us righteous and holy. And thus our English translations, I think have rightly translated this. The ESV translates it this way, the NIV and others, they, they translate it as those who are being sanctified. Right? Whereas in verse 10, again, it's those who have been sanctified. So again, the difference is that verse 10 is about our new status before God, while verse 14 is about the ongoing process in which sin is being put to death in our lives. Friends, I, I find this to be a rather uh, remarkable point. I think that it's deeply pastoral. Because in one sense, you could rightly and perhaps even provocatively say that what verse 14 is really saying is that for by a single offering, Jesus has sanctified those who are being sanctified. 
that Jesus has perfected those who are being perfected. And so as I try to consider why is it the Bible puts it that way, I wonder if maybe this is something that this congregation to whom this letter is addressed really needed to hear. And friends, I, I wonder if it's something that maybe some of you need to hear this morning as well. Because listen, this church to whom this letter is addressed, this is a very imperfect church. They don't look perfect. Now you go back and you can reread chapters 5 and 6, uh, where their immaturity is detailed for us. Uh, we're going to see it as we move ahead to the, to the remaining chapters in Hebrews. They're, they're clearly struggling with different sin in their lives. But as this author writes this letter to them, he's also making this wonderful declaration to them that they're perfect. In Jesus, you are perfect, he said. Have confidence in that. And yet, of course, the reality is that they know that they're not perfect. Every time they look in the mirror, they know they're not perfect. Every time they go to bed at night and they reflect on the day, all the ways that they failed to obey God, they know that they're not perfect. And friends, what I wonder is that maybe one of the main reasons we lose our confidence in the finished work of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross is because we hear the wonderful message that we've been forgiven of our sins and that our sins have been taken away. And yet we're painfully aware of the ways that sin still seems to have a hold on our lives. And so we begin to think there's no way this is true. There's no way it's done. I need more offerings. I need more sacrifices because this isn't working. And thus verse 14 is saying to us, Make sure you understand exactly who the people are who Jesus has perfected. It's those who aren't yet perfect. It's those who are still struggling with sin. It's those who have the law of God written on their hearts and on their minds, and so they desperately long to obey God. But they're not there yet. They're still being transformed. They're, they're still learning to say no to sin and yes to God. So I want to encourage you this morning, dear Christian brother, dear Christian sister. Don't let the ongoing presence of sin in your life undermine your confidence in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. It's still all done. Your status before God hasn't changed because of your sin. In, in the very process of you being sanctified, you are the very person who Jesus has already been sanctified. So even in verses 15 to 18, where Jeremiah 31 is once again quoted, we're being assured that what the Holy Spirit is wanting us to see in those verses is that, yes, while the law of God has been written on our hearts and minds, thus transforming us so we grow in obedience, yet we must clearly understand that even while that transformation is taking place in regard to our sin, God has forgiven it and remembered it no more. And so even as you actively pursue holiness in your life, make sure you're clear about this. Your sins are already forgiven. But don't make the mistake of thinking that your personal obedience to God's law will serve as an offering to Him. That your obedience isn't some sort of offering to God that will take away your sin. Because Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Friends, listen, it takes a humble, confident faith to believe that, doesn't it? It takes a humble, confident faith to be able to look at Jesus and to say, in the midst of your sin, Jesus, I believe that you have perfected me in your sight. And though my progress in holiness seems to be so painfully meager and slow, you have written your law on my heart, and I long to do it. I hate my sin. I long to obey you. And so even though I feel like I'm stumbling along, I'm barely making progress, Jesus, I believe, as slow though it may be, you are working in me that which is sight, you will bring to completion that which you have begun. And therefore I rejoice and rest in the promise you've given me. That because of the beautiful, sufficient gift of your body offered up for me on the cross, you have perfected me for all time. Friends, that that kind of posture Gracious Father, thank you for the finished work of Jesus. Thank you for taking away our sin. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. 
Thank you for the joy of being able to live our lives in your presence. Having no consciousness of our sins, knowing that it's all done, it's all complete. That you look on us and you don't see us as guilty sinners deserving condemnation. But amazingly, by your grace, you see us as your perfect sons and daughters, whom you love for eternity. Father, for those who are still struggling to have this kind of gospel confidence, will you please impress these wonderful things?